This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore, and I have with me uh, today a um, special guest. Let me just let me just say this before we begin. Uh, I can pretty much divide up uh, people into two different categories these days during the uh, pandemic. Uh, category one are the people who should not be listening uh, to this episode uh, today. Uh, the people who uh, desperately need to be reassured that we're almost through this. So we just got another little wave to go and um, um, we'll have that vaccine uh, before election day. Uh, This probably isn't your episode uh, to listen to. Um, If you've been told that the schools are reopening in in September and no problem and uh, what you've been living through, everything's going to be fine uh, because the kids will be, kids will be out of your hair. Uh, That's one group. The other group, that I belong to is I'd rather, I want to hear the bad news. Uh, Not because I want to get bummed out or depressed, but because I want to know and I want to participate in figuring out what we're going to do to save ourselves. And, and I asked our guest today to be on uh, rumble because in these last four plus months, she uh, has over and over again, when I've seen her on TV, um, refuses to sugarcoat what's going on, refuses to pull her punch when she should be like giving us hope. She's telling us the truth. Um, and we don't, a lot of us don't want truth. <laughs> we would just want hope. But again, I'm not of that camp. Um, my guest today on Rumble is Lori Garrett. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning science writer and a global public health expert. She's worked at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, She's a senior fellow um, for health on the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, uh, Her books include The Coming Plague, which was written in 1994. The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance, and other books uh, since then, writing about HIV 30 years ago, and, and what needed to get done with that. Um, uh, when I first came to New York 30 years ago, uh, each year, the number of funerals or whatever you would start to attend of people who had died of HIV, and I can't remember now when the last funeral was that I went to of someone who died of HIV. Lori Garrett has been uh, one of our most important truth tellers. It's an honor, Lori, to have you on my podcast here today. Hi, Michael. Let's not beat around the bush. What what everybody wants to know, of course, probably a question you can't answer because the virus is the one with the answer and the virus isn't uh, very good at communicating. Um, where are we at and what is going to happen to us? And, and, and I, and I, I, again, I want to hear, uh, even if it's not full of hope, I want to hear the truth. Okay. Unvarnished. Uh, first of all, many, many countries are trying to uh, come up with plans and schemes that allow them to reopen, uh, doing some stage of reopening, getting their businesses going again, getting people back in theaters, kids back in school, and so on, only to see another surge of cases. Uh, this is happening even in countries that have done extremely well, such as Australia, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, at least in their case, they have excellent surveillance systems on, on board so that they spot these new cases as soon as they emerge 
and they do contact tracing and they isolate everybody who's infected and they stop it before it gets huge. Um, but it is important to recognize that in the absence of any really good technology that makes a difference, meaning a, an effective vaccine or uh, a curative treatment that's affordable to all, uh, this virus is going to continue to resurge and reappear all over the place. Uh, and one of the key reasons... For how long? Oh, years. Years. Um, it, it could become... Uh, there's a very good chance if we screw this up and continue to screw it up as much as we already have, that this will become endemic like HIV, join HIV in the pantheon of microbes that previously had no impact on human beings and are now a permanent feature in the human health landscape of the planet. If that happens, then we will be in a situation where all over the world, people will have to take precautions all the time. We will have to be uh, shutting things down for uh, for periods of time, then reopening for periods of time. There will have to be detailed infrastructures of contact tracing and uh, public health that currently don't exist in 90 plus percent of the planet. And we will be in a very, very difficult situation. It will be life-changing for just about everybody. A doctor told me last week that, and, and he, he lowered his voice when he said this, he said, um, we're going to be wearing masks on some level, pretty much for the rest of our lives. I went, what? He said what you just said, that this some form of the, it just isn't, we, we didn't handle this right. And, um, and now we're, we're really stuck with it for a long time. And when Zeke Emanuel he was on CNN with Wolf Blitzer a few months ago. It's the first time I, I heard anybody say this was going to be a, a two-year, maybe a three-year pandemic. And Wolf immediately turned to the other guest. <laughs> he did not want that going out over the airwaves live. But it shocked me. And and, I, and I've since spoken to him and others. And, and I've listened and watched you. And um, you've made this very clear that what we're going through right now, the way we're going through it right now, this is at least, at least you said, I think you told the times 36 months, but you said that, you know, almost two months ago. So I'm just curious, have you gotten more optimistic or, 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 well, I don't think you've ever been optimistic about this. You've been trying to get us out of our kind of fake optimism and get real. And I'm just curious now, um, as you see it and just, you know, Obviously, don't be afraid. You're on my podcast. Well, Michael, here's the thing. We started off with a situation that was basically under the control of two individuals that are two of the most deeply flawed leaders of modern time, Xi Jinping and Donald Trump, and each made phenomenal mistakes that reflected their own sort of character flaws, their own very strange notions of what constitutes governance in China there is no doubt that they screwed up in December and January, no doubt whatsoever, and that they deceived the world or attempted to deceive the world about the true extent of the crisis. They tried to, you know, handle it on their own without telling the world. And once caught with their hands in the cookie jar, they tried to smash the whole cookie jar. Uh, once China began to take things a little more shall we say, uh, in a more civil manner, uh, though 
let's keep in mind the journalists, the Chinese journalists who were telling the truth about all this are still, for the most part, never heard of again. And some of the lead scientists who were playing a key role in China in uh, in January have, for all intents and purposes, disappeared. So let's be very clear. It's not like China suddenly became heroes, though they would like us to think so. But on our side of the pond, uh, it's been the Donald Trump show. And that means that there's never for a moment been a consistent policy regarding how to deal with this epidemic. Now, it's one thing to have to change your policy because you recognize new science. And that happens in any outbreak with a previously unknown microorganism because you, by definition, don't know everything about the enemy. So like any good soldier, you have to adapt. You have to see what the enemy's doing and change your strategy. But we didn't even have a strategy to change. It's just been thoroughly uh, playing to Trump's other interests, such as re-election, and has had nothing to do with a coherent strategic plan of any kind. And we're eventually, Trump felt when he saw the criticism shower down on him, that the best way to deal with it was to tell all the states you're on your own. You're on your own not only to come up with your own plans, but to find your own PPEs, to find your own drugs, to find your own everything. And by the way, you're going to compete against each other. So I'm going to make sure that all the states are essentially in a fragmented, hostile relationship with one another. Oh, and by the way, let me just also say you're going to compete against the rest of the world so that when you go out and find N95 masks, you'll probably rip off a supply that was supposed to go to Ghana. Or when you find uh, some hospital gowns for the people of Nebraska, it might very well be that you interrupted the supply chain that was destined for Vietnam. And so we have become this pariah on the planet where we have used our sharp elbows and our economic power to usurp supplies that were in many cases already committed to other countries, other places, other people, and done so in this fragmented, hysterical manner, uh, generally paying top dollar, an excess top dollar for every single thing, uh, and with very poor results because none of it's being implemented in any kind of smart plan or scheme. So where we are now is that we have some states that have paid a very dear price in uh, March and April and into May, and those are primarily in the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest. And these states have brought their epidemics under control for the moment. However, every one of them, and especially New York, um, recognizes that the virus can be reintroduced by travelers in a microsecond, that having the, the new caseload come down to double-digit levels is laudable but temporary. Meanwhile, we have this explosion, I mean, nuclear bomb explosion of COVID going on right now across the Deep South and the Sun Belt. And it's in many cases in states with that have had long-standing conservative governments that have cut the heck out of their public health budgets for years preceding the arrival of this virus and have cut the heck out of their Medicaid budgets, um, made Medicaid eligibility so difficult, so painful uh, 
that they have high burdens of people with no access to health insurance and have eliminated whole kinds of health services for the poor in their own populations. And so they are actually more vulnerable uh, than the states that previously did battle with the virus. They mm. have they have less resources to bring to the fight. Right, right. And then, and then you add to this that it's it is clearly a virus that exploits divisions within society. So, I mean, if you're in India, that means it plays out according to caste, and the lowest caste, the Dalits, pay the biggest price in terms of death toll per capita, uh, illness per capita, and so on. Here in the United States, our price is always a racial price. That's America for you. And so we see that uh, more people who are African-American and Latino in particular and Native American are coming down with severe forms of COVID that lead to death or near-death experiences and very costly, lengthy hospitalizations um, with huge impact on their entire family and often resulting in a loss of employment, um, a loss of ability to work for extended periods of time. And so this is exploiting and dividing us even further within states that already had been exploiting these very same divides. I think where we are right now is that even uh, some of the most conservative uh you know, Freedom Forum members of the Republican Party are beginning to see the writing on the wall here. They're beginning to recognize that this president has no idea how to fight this virus and that denial is not going to make the virus just spontaneously disappear, though the president just as recently as yesterday said eventually that's what was going to happen. The virus would just, quote unquote, disappear. Um. And they're, begin they're beginning to recognize that they're on a leaderless ship that is out to sea amid, you know, 300-foot rogue waves, torrential downpours, and, uh, you know, there's a leak in the hull. We're all on that ship, too, not just the Republicans behind Trump. We're all, we're all stuck on that ship that's adrift. Of course, we're all paying the price for this. I mean, when you look at the, the unemployment lines in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, that's Mitch McConnell's home state. And the lines to uh, receive the PPP checks uh, are a full day in line. You're, you get in the line at four in the morning, and if you're lucky, you see someone and maybe fill out a form that gets you committed to receiving a check eventually uh, before they close at 5 p.m. This is... Uh, you know, this is not going to build a voting clientele for Mitch McConnell. So I think that what we're seeing now is a lot of frantic pursuit for quick solutions. Um, on Wall Street, that means euphoria every time. I mean, just insane euphoria on the stock market every time any drug or uh, vaccine potential is whispered in positive ways to have had some potential you know, positive outcome. But let's be very, very clear. We have no curative drug. We have no fundamentally uh, shattering or differential treatment. And we have no vaccine at this time. Everything is somewhere in a pipeline with no clear idea what may or may not work. So Wall Street jumps up and down and gets excited. But there will come a moment 
down the road, Michael, where because of this warp speed mandate from the president, which is a competitive mandate mirrored by Xi Jinping, who's already actually ordered vaccine used on Chinese military personnel that is utterly experimental. Um, and by com competition in other countries in a nationalist manner, we're in this warp sp speed race to be the first country with a viable vaccine. It will get rushed out. The president wants it, of course, in use before the election. He wants to have the stock market buoyed by it, and he wants the American people buoyed by it so that he can say, look, you know, reelect me. I've, I've succeeded. Well, there won't be a, a vaccine that has undergone the kinds of rigorous testing necessary to not only prove that it works, but also that it's safe. Uh, you can't do that between now and November. That's just it's impossible. You can't even recruit the personnel to undergo the safety trials. You can't uh, develop the appropriate uh, standards inside the FDA for the approval process. It's just, it's absolutely impossible. So you're, you're saying there's not going to be a vaccine by October? <laughs> no way. No, it's not. I'm just curious because, you know, your Pulitzer was, was for your work on, uh, on Ebola. And, um, that seems to, that was a vex, the vaccine that they came up with, that took at least five years. Has there ever been a vaccine uh, uh, that has been invented in five or, or six months? No. Never. The only thing you could say is that we, we do manage to come up with new flu vaccines in relatively short windows of time, uh, but that's just simply making slight changes on previous flu vaccines. It's not a fundamentally new vaccine against a previously unknown microorganism. So that hasn't happened before. No. I, my home is in Northern Michigan and uh, my friends and, and, and people, I'm in New, I'm in New, I've been in New York during this uh, pandemic. Um, but they, they've only had like, I think a dozen deaths and I shouldn't say only it's 12 people that didn't need to die. Um, maybe 60 people have come down with it. To them, they're like, um, I think we're going to get through this. We're going to escape this. Uh, we live in, in northern Michigan. It's a sort of away from the maddening uh, nation. Um, I don't know what to say to them because I, 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 I find their, their, their sense of wanting to believe that somehow you can be in this country but not be affected by it, eventually not be affected. And I think eventually – that we will in places like Northern Michigan be seriously affected. What do you, what do you say to people in those? And I've tried to cite the pockets, the Albany Georges and the Sioux Falls and the, the, you know, the little, the little places that have just had these explosions um, that this too could come to us. What do you say to people that live in those areas? Or maybe, maybe you say to them, Hey, good on you. You lucked out. Well, it's, there's another aspect of the same basic question you're asking, and that is, what do you say to people under 30 who say, look, you know, this isn't lethal for us. This is an old people's problem. I'm heading out to party. My hormones are pouring through and it's time to, uh -huh. to, to find a partner and go out and have some fun. Um, but look, in, there's a bar called Harper's. It's in East Lansing, Michigan. Yes, I know. And uh, they did premature opening, and they got overwhelmed with uh, clientele. Uh, the clientele were all under 30 years of age, um, and the youngest I believe I saw was 15. 
It was a wild and crazy series of days of partying in this bar. And now at last count, 110 individuals have developed COVID who were in that bar. Um, And I think it's really easy to say, you know, I look at the data and I think that I'm exempt. I'm somehow special. My town or my age group or my racial group or my whatever, fill in the blank, is somehow exempt. But it's just about chance, my friends. You know, your your town in Michigan may not have yet had a super spreader event. Some individual who had a really heavy load of virus in their bodies went into a hospital, got misdiagnosed in the first few hours of hospitalization, uh, coughed and spread all over hospital personnel, uh, other patients, and boom, you have a, a, a catastrophe. Or a neighboring na- nursing home, same scenario, or a bar like Harper's. Yeah, I've tried to explain this. Like, you know, it, it just takes one truck driver from Toledo who's bringing up a load of groceries for the grocery store in Traverse City, Michigan. And, but he stops at the, at the, uh, the gas station. He stops and gets food at the diner. And, and just what, wherever he talks, coughs, touches, whatever, that one person uh, can, can, as you said, can be the super spreader. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be a lot of people. It can, it can start with one person. Way back in the 60s, there was a, a band called Eric Burden and the Animals. And um, they were a British rock band. And they most of their stuff was uh, pretty conventional rock and roll. But they did, on one of their albums, they did this really strange cut um, in which the band sang kind of like a fake Gregorian chant and little chime dinged in the background. And Eric Burden in his deep baritone told the story of the plague coming and the aristocrats all went inside the castle and pulled up the drawbridge and filled the moat with water and refused to help the serfs and the poor. And then the plague went through and there was great suffering in the land. And when they finally, the plague was gone, they said, where's the king and the folks inside the castle? And they stormed the castle and found everybody dead. This was, you know, Eric Burden's big hit song (laughs) about the plague. Uh, But it's an apt metaphor that one can apply to any of these situations and say, "Mm, you know, is Mar-a-Lago the castle with the moat and the drawbridge? Is your town the castle with the moat and the drawbridge? You know, this epidemic is finding its way into all sorts of strange little corners of the world in places where, you know, we don't really think of them as being on the beaten trail for tourism or business travel or heavy commerce, but there's, there's COVID-19. And we're only beginning to see the spread of this globally. This is only, you know, chapter one of a very long war and peace length novel. That's what's hard to take, to think that when I say this to people, All I've been saying is I've been trying to keep it low. I've been saying this is at least another year or two of this. When in my head I'm going, you know, you need to tell people what what doctors and scientists have told you uh, that, no, it's two to three to four years of this. Then it may be something different, but it may still be with us. Are we going to eventually need a shot just for this, just for this coronavirus uh, 
for the rest of our lives? Or is it, is it going to be something like that? Or, or are we just going to treat it with whether it's that steroid pill that they said is helping or a blood thinner that is helping to prevent clots in the lungs? You know, what, in, in, in your view of this, I know we don't know everything because we're dealing with something we've never dealt with before, but what, you know, what is, what, just paint the picture of what, and I don't care how bad the picture is because then I know what I'm going to have to deal with. I need to, I, I think people listening to this want to know, what does this look like for the next year, next four years, next whatever? Well, here's the thing. Um, the more the immune response to this virus gets dissected, um, the more complicated it looks and the more it reminds all of us that we still don't have a vaccine against HIV despite hundreds of millions of dollars of effort or billions really of effort and many, many years of smart scientists working on the problem. Right. We don't, we don't, have, we don't have a vaccine for malaria. Which no. They've been working on that for 70 years. Well, at least there's a good excuse in the case of malaria because it is a parasite, not a virus. Uh, and it takes on different stages in its life cycle. So you could get a good, decent immune response to one stage, but then it appears as something completely different and the immune system doesn't see it. Uh, but in the case of coronavirus, what is very interesting if, when you look at the immune response is that uh, even people who never develop symptoms um, and certainly people who survive after prolonged illness have pretty pronounced immune responses, and it's a complex immune response. It's not just like it would be, say, with polio, where you make um, IgG antibodies, and the antibodies attack little spikes or proteins on the outside of the virus capsid and surround it and send off signals to the rest of the immune system, and in come the macrophage, and they eat it up, and that's the end of the threat. With this virus, what we see is that when you mount an immune response, it actually involves several different arms of the immune system uh, working all at once. You don't just make IgG antibodies if you survive. You make IgG and IgA, probably IgM, and then you also make this whole thing called the cellular immune response, which involves things called T-cells. And this is a very elaborate, complicated response that if improperly modulated in your body can lead to what's called a cytokine storm where your immune system goes haywire, overreacts, and ends up taking out whole systems of your body as collateral damage in an all-out sort of nuclear war against the invading virus. Um, and what's really interesting is that many studies are showing that these immune responses are very short they may last only a few months and then you're vulnerable again. And yet it's also the case that people who were asymptomatic um, do have T cell immunity. Where is it coming from? Well, it's cross reactivity with other coronaviruses, which is the common cold. About half of all common colds you've ever had were coronaviruses. They're not in any way identical to this particular COVID coronavirus, but they're in the same family. And it turns out the immune system cross-reacts. And so it sees coronavirus as being sort of like a common cold. Well, what's wrong with that? Doesn't that sound great? Then you'd have an immune response. Well, the problem is there's only about a handful of coronaviruses that cause what we call common colds. 
And yet just about everybody listening to this gets a cold just about every year. And it's because the immune response to those viruses is short-lived. It doesn't go into what's called the memory compartment of the immune system as a sort of permanent thing like a measles shot is, like a polio shot is. Um, and that could mean that developing a vaccine is going to be extraordinarily difficult, that we'll have products out and Wall Street will get excited and government leaders will get excited about some sort of RNA or DNA-based va vaccine that comes out uh, sometime in the next 12 months. Um, but it may only cause a blip of a immune response and require boosters over and over and over again. So, oh man. All right. What do you, okay. Um, a lot of people are hoping, especially people who may have already gotten it, maybe they don't even know they've had this, that the immunity is going to be forever. And you've just told us that that just may not be the case. You may be immune for maybe three months. Well, Tony Fauci has said, warned this several times. In his testimony recent, most recently before the Senate, he tried to make senators understand this. But, of course, none of them wanted to yield sufficient time for him to explain the science. So uh, you just caught you know, a sentence or two of him saying, uh, this. we don't know what the duration of the response is, quote-unquote. Um, what he's trying to warn the political leadership about is is exactly what I just explained to you. Mm -hmm. And then there's another facet wow. to this. The, the, the vaccines that are at the front of the line in terms of rapidity of development fall into two categories. One category is vaccines based on nuclear material, uh, nucleic acids, either mRNA or DNA. So this is the genes of the virus. The genetic material of the virus becomes the vaccine. Um, or they are vaccines where you take the code for specific proteins that are on the outside of the virus and you stick it into a common cold virus called an adenovirus. So there's two types of common cold viruses, coronaviruses and adenoviruses. You stick it in there with the adenovirus and then since the adenovirus is relatively harmless, nobody dies of a common cold, um, then that becomes the way of you sort of infect people with a common cold and they get immunized in the process against COVID. Well, the problem here is, first of all, we have never before used a nucleic acid, either RNA or DNA-based vaccine in any context on any species not just never on humans, we've never used it as a veterinary vaccine or a livestock vaccine. And we don't really know what to expect. This is beyond experimental. This is, uh, you know, never, never land. And the FDA has never, and its counterparts around the world, these regulatory agencies have never had to go through the process of figuring out how to approve the safety and reliability of a nucleic acid-based vaccine. Mm. And worse yet, these va uh, vaccines are so unstable that I am told they have to be stored on dry ice, which is unbelievable. <laughs> so what, what do our scientists need right now? What, what, let's assume Trump wasn't president. I mean, Biden said the other day that if he's elected, Tony Fauci not only has like a, a permanent job, that there'll be no muzzle, that he will not have to have 
Biden or his people approve what he's going to say before he says it to the public. And frankly, you know, it seems like I'm not the only one to say this, that when you see Dr. Fauci on television, it almost feels like you're watching a hostage tape where he's he's not quite able to say what we know, we think we know he wants to say, but can't say it. And you're sitting there on the edge of the chair going, say it, say it. And it's like he can't say it or he'll be out of a job in two hours. I mean, what? how do we get through these next six months with this? Uh, it just, it, it, I don't think we have six months to lose at this point. You know, it's, it, is, it is dire beyond belief. I, I am, you know, I went through a period first when I realized this virus was out there in December, I was in a sense of uh, adrenaline urgency. Got to get everybody hopped up. Got to tell the story. Got to get us moving. Let's activate all our systems. Let's go. And then as I started seeing that China was covering up and the systems around the world were not getting activated, then there was a kind of anger. Come on, everybody. Let's get going. What the heck? We don't have a minute to spare. Go, 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 go. Why is WHO dragging its feet? Come on, everybody. And then when I realized that none of the necessary steps had been taken by almost any government and by WHO and by our government in the appropriate amount of time, then I sank into a really deep depression for uh, a good five or six weeks where I just I felt almost paralyzed mm. by the situation. Now I'm coming back out with a whole set, set of outrage. And uh, I feel that we have no choice. We have to start shouting. We have to start saying, um, ladies and gentlemen, this is the plague. This is what we've been warning you about all this, these many years, in my case, more than three decades, it is here, it is now, and we either get our act together and pull up all, pull all the punches and go all out to conquer it, or we're going to have permanent COVID-19 on the landscape for humanity, and it's going to be yet one more horrible thing we're going to pass on to the younger generation. If, if you were put in charge of this in January of, of what would you, what would you do other than no one's going to give you a magic wand. So what are the specific things uh, that you would do? Because I'm thinking back at the beginning of this, we all remember, I said this, a lot of people, well, just wait till the warm weather comes and then it'll be gone. Whoa. Well, the warm weather's here. And, and in, by the 4th of July, it was over 50,000 new cases a day in the U S. So, you know, or we need more ventilators. And then they found out, well, the ventilators might actually have been causing some of the, some of the problem. It's, it's because we don't know what this is and we've never seen it before. So everybody's trying their best to figure this out, but it's, it's how, you know, we don't know a lot about this. What we thought we knew, some of that wasn't true. We were guessing it's, it's, um, you understand the confusion that people feel and then the fear that people have because they just, they just don't know what to believe anymore uh, other than they know that whatever they're hearing from the white house is just a, a bunch of bull. Well, I think you've asked me two questions. One was, what would I do starting in January? You know, if I were, yeah, in, charge. were in charge, and the other is, is what people should believe. So let's, let me take the second one. What should you believe? We have a unique problem in the United States in that, we've had this extraordinary anti-science movement going on, rising and worsening for 
several years now, including a, a huge anti-vaccine movement, but you know, also coupled with denying si- uh, climate change, denying uh, the impact of certain kinds of pollution. Um, George W. Bush, George W. Bush preventing any stem cell research made it virtually illegal. We could for eight years we couldn't study stem cells to find solutions. We can go down a long list, and it is not. I mean, it's much much worse under this administration, but it, it well precedes uh, this administration. So, when you're facing something full of unknowns that is a previously unseen microbe. You must expect that science will make daily discoveries and that in some cases the discovery will contradict what seemed to be the dogma of five weeks ago. That's the nature of the beast. You know, we're, we, we've landed on a planet we've never been on before. We figured out that it has nitrogen, oxygen, helium, and hydrogen in its atmosphere, uh, but we haven't yet figured out whether or not it's safe to take off our helmets. And Somebody decides it is, they take the helmet off and they're dead. Uh, it's, you, you know, you need a sophisticated level of understanding in the general public that science will go forward, but there's experiments, there's mistakes, there's retakes, there's out into the unknown. The problem is that our, our public is very uh, intolerant of any errors by science, any confusion from science. Wear a mask, not wear a mask. Ventilator, not ventilator. Uh, kids can get it, kids can't get it, and so on. Um, and, and there's almost this insane expectation that a matter of days after discovery of a previously unknown microbe, uh, we should know everything about it and know exactly how to treat it and know exactly how it's spread. And that's just, you know, impossible. But to the, your second question, how do you move forward? What would be different? I mean, if it's, it really is about leadership. And at this moment, and if you were in charge, if, if, if at this moment or in January, I would do two things immediately. One would be to take all necessary steps to defragment the American response to put more authority at the CDC, bring more of the decision-making and the guidances into a centralized repository so that the states were following coherent strategies, coherent ordering, have centralized ordering of supplies, centralized everything to create greater efficiency and uh, coherence across the national system. So that if we said wear masks, it's not wear masks in Santa Fe, but not in Taos, it's wear masks in America. Um, and the second thing is a recognition that this microbe is global. It's been found everywhere, to my knowledge, except Antarctica so far on the entire planet. And even remote islands already have this virus. Um, that means that it cannot be defeated for any population, certainly not a giant territory the size of America, unless it's defeated for all populations. And so we have to come back into the global community. We have to resume our relationship, not just with WHO, but with G7, uh, G20, uh, World Economic Forum, uh, the International Pharmaceutical Pursuit, the uh, World Trade Organization, 
every single international entity that is essential to creating a global coherent response so that we don't end up in a situation where country A develops a vaccine and says, screw the rest of you, we're keeping it for our own only. Or as just happened, Secretary Azar says remdesivir might provide some margin of a shorter hospitalization time for people who get full-blown COVID-19. So we are buying the entire Gilead supply and it stays in America and the rest of the world can go to hell. We have to get out of that and into a whole new mindset that says the only way to conquer this disease is to conquer it everywhere. And the only way to conquer it everywhere is with a global strategic plan, a global mutualist commitment with a sense of solidarity that cuts across all countries. And that's, you know, a clear set of rules of the game. You cannot deny treatments to another nationality or to a subset within your country based on caste or race or religion. You have to have a clear sense that America is back in the driver's seat, back helping the whole world, back being the leader of a positivist approach that we were when George Bush created PEPFAR and changed the whole ballgame of how the world viewed the enormous toll of HIV in Africa. We can do this, but we have to get out of our nationalistic mind frames, our populist mind frames, but more importantly, we have to get out of thinking that there's some kind of inherent rights mechanism, a sort of, you know, constitutional right to get sick, a constitutional right to refuse to uh, take steps to protect your neighbor, whether your neighbor is a 70-year-old with cancer that lives down the hall from you in your apartment building, or your neighbor is Mexico. And we have to get out of this notion that somehow, I mean, when I saw a protest demonstration in Austin, Texas, where a whole gang of no-mask folks were screaming at a woman wearing a mask and shouting, we're not communists, we won't wear masks. When the heck did protecting yourself and others from a public health threat become communism? No, it's, it's insane at this point. And, and the fact that it's become political if they're wearing a mask, that means they're against Trump. If they're not wearing a mask, they're for Trump. And and why Trump would want to lead his own supporters to their possible graves makes no political sense. You need every vote possible, Donald Trump. Why would you be supporting or acting in a way where your very own people who are going to vote for you may not be around on November 3rd? It it, it boggles the mind, uh, Lori. I just, I, I, you know, just on a, on a political science level, it makes no sense. Um, but we're, we're at this point now where we just want to keep telling ourselves these stories. And I don't want to tell myself any, I mean, I'm in, I'm in day, I'm in day, I think like 117 or whatever of in my own personal lockdown. And, you know, and I, I had pneumonia uh, in recent years and have, you know, a compromised situation with my lungs. So the doctor told me, you know, you need to, you need to isolate and, and be careful. Um, so I've been very careful. And, um, but it <clears throat> people, I mean, parents believe that they're, the kids are going to go to school in September. Are the kids going to go to school in September? Can I just ask you that? I mean, I, I know you don't have the, the full the total answer of, but I just think, I, I just don't know what to say to them. I don't want to 
burst their bubble and maybe, maybe, maybe the kids can go to school. I don't know. I mean, what would you send your kids to school in, in September? There, if you look around the world, there's a lot we could learn from other countries that would help us to consider opening schools safely, but we're not, we don't have the humility to imagine that America can learn from other nations. So we're, you know, floundering and, and flailing about um, at rather than mimic some of these very effective strategies. Japan has kids back in school. South Korea and Singapore have kids back in school. Uh, New Zealand has kids back in school. What have, what have they done? What are their strategies? Uh, well, first of all, you have to bring the general population viral level down so that the community isn't just saturated with asymptomatic carriers uh, regardless of their age, um, running around spreading virus without taking any precautions or any commitment to the okay. social. So, so we, have, we, we haven't done that. And, right. and uh, uh, spoiler alert, we're not going to do it in the next two months. Uh, you know, the, you have to hope that folks in Arizona, folks in Texas, folks in Georgia, where it's just skyrocketing right now and where the ICUs are filling up, uh, where the governors are themselves having to realize that they are just a day or two away from no longer having room in their intensive care units to take on more patients. So that they're going to be like New York, looking at, you know, do you turn the Javits Center into a giant warehouse for COVID patients? Um, uh, you have to assume if we make it through 4th of July without um, it turning into Memorial Day all over again and massive infectious events and parties and what have you, um, you have to assume that there's going to be an awakening, that political leaders are finally going to say, wow, you know, <laughs> we tried plan A, that didn't work. Let's go to plan B, which might mean actually doing contact tracing, actually doing widespread testing, actually everybody wearing masks and washing their hands and actually rethinking what does quote unquote reopening mean? I mean, the other side of this, however, is that the real pain of the economy hasn't yet been felt. The majority of Americans who've lost their jobs are either on a furlough. So they think, well, I will get the job back. It's just, you know, wait for this magic moment with the virus. Or um, they're getting some form of federally subsidized PPP or uh, uh, unemployment extension or augmentation of unemployment payments so that, you know, that plus credit cards, they can pay the rent and they can buy food. But the time is running out. It, unless a miracle happens with Mitch McConnell and the folks in the Senate, uh, none of this is going to be extended past July. So we do have a scenario to look at in which the real death toll of this huge surge in infection in the deep south of the United States and the Sunbelt states uh, will now be felt by August in graveyards and in intensive care units and uh, the death toll will be catching up. Uh, we'll be looking at, you know, 200,000 dead Americans by Labor Day, um, possibly a quarter of a million by the end of September. 
uh, and it will all be hitting at the same time as this economic catastrophe hits that leaves people unable to pay rent, unable to buy food, unable to buy gasoline for their vehicles. And that could make all the politics of this even more unpredictable and uncontrollable because in their desperation without jobs, people do a lot of crazy things. And, you know, it has been part of the political agenda already to pit the economy against the virus and to have the public buy into the idea that public health is trying to somehow make them poor that it is somehow the mission of public health to destroy the economy, which is clearly not the case. Um, you know, uh, there, there have been multiple estimates of where our GDP will be uh, by December based on the current trends with this, our epidemic uh, and our lockdowns. Um, most of the estimates put us at negative 8% GDP by December. Well, you know, we've only been in that kind of territory of economic despair about seven or eight times in the, in the 20th century up to now. So in the last 80 years, uh, we only have a handful of incidents that come close to that level of catastrophe of the economy. And, and frankly, most of the people I know in public health are pretty incompetent when it comes to both politics and economics. And most of the people I know on Wall Street and in economics have absolutely no control of their hubris and believe themselves to be capable of absorbing public health and science with great wisdom and figuring out how to put that into their economic forecasting. Uh, we don't have a real conversation based on respect between the two sides, and it is easily exploited by politicians. What has happened to us? I mean, not that we ever had it completely figured out, um, you know, when he says make America great again. I, I mean, I've, I've always loved this country, but I've never thought of us as had ever, we've never had really realized our potential and done what we could have done or should have done by now. And now I don't know how we're going to get out of this. I don't know how I, 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 I'm one who doesn't believe we have, we can't just sit around between now and January. Um, we can't all stay indoors. The economy, as you just mentioned, is like you said, we haven't really truly felt the, the absolute pain of this. Uh, people are struggling right now. Uh, it's the beginning of July and they, a lot of people haven't paid the rent. Are they going to be evicted? Are we going to see mass evictions, mass foreclosures? Everybody is so, so on pins and needles about this, Lori, that and well, they, they should be. They should be. And, you know, the first people that are actually really going to be in trouble are the small landlords. The person who, you know, 20 years ago bought a couple of houses in addition to their own. And they've been renting them out and they're decent folks and their margins are really tight. And if their renters go two months without paying rent, that small family landlord is going to be turning to their bank saying, Hey, can you give me some time on my mortgages? Right. They can't pay the mortgage. And those banks are going to be saying, uh-uh. Wow. <laughs> the banks are going to be calling them in. You know, so I've, I've, I am not uh, an economist. So I, I've tried to teach myself as much economics as possible. But at a certain point, 
I, I will caveat what I say. And in this case, I have seen several debates of late in, in uh, key economic circles about uh, whether or not we'll be experiencing a homelessness crisis in most major American cities by uh, the fall. Uh, and I've seen some claiming that it could be the worst homeless crisis since the Great Depression. I've seen others claiming that because of the credit cycles, you know, there were no such thing as credit cards in the Great Depression. Because of the ease with which people can borrow, um, most homeowners will be able to retain their homes uh, and most people who own apartments and what have you will be okay. I, I just don't know. What I can say this is this. There, most of the smart leadership in public health is already experiencing in America death threats, incredible hostility. Uh, you know, we have police protection and secret service protection around many of our public health leaders right now at the local level, all the way up to Tony Fauci. Um, and the hostility against contact tracers and people coming around knocking on your door asking, are you wearing a mask and so on is very high. We're seeing more and more episodes where the two crises of our time are getting conflated so that you have, you know, older white uh, right wing with guns uh, raising those guns in objection against, you know, African-American or Latino poorer representative of public health measures. Uh, and you can just see this could potentially, if our fearless leader continues to try and whip up flames of white power and then of don't, I don't wear a mask and then this and that, it all becomes conflated in a way that could be absolutely catastrophically disastrous in America. And this is what makes us unique, unfortunately, with the rest of the world. And I have to say, all my friends outside the United States are looking at us in astonishment. Yeah. No, they can't, they cannot believe that what's happening here. When you have the, all of Europe, the whole European Union is reporting maybe four or 5,000 new cases a day now, and we're well over 50,000, and we have 100 million less people than the European European Union. It's, it's so, um, it's embarrassing, but I, I have, I just want to go back to something you said here because I, and I read, you said this in the times to Frank Bruni, you alluded to the fact that, that when the working class, when the middle class, when obviously the poor, um, decide that they've had, they've had enough suffering from this pandemic and not just the medical suffering, but the economic suffering, that there will be a rage against uh, those who uh, have made money, um, who, as you say, have this competitive thing going on between the drug companies, uh, Wall Street, et cetera. Um, th th you've warned of this. You've warned of this. The rage um, will not contain itself, just like the virus. It w it, people will, will stand up when it's their family that's out on the street, when they don't have food. Well, how do they think people are going to start reacting? What's this country going to look like for six, nine months from now? Um, on one level, I'd say it's not, it's not going to be a very pretty sight. But on another level, I think, well, maybe this is the reckoning that we've needed for a long time to fix the things that we need to fix. I mean, what, what's your honest feeling about this? And don't 
be afraid that, of, of inciting anything. You know, rage is can be left wing, but rage can also be right wing. Um, and leaders of various stripes and types, religious, political, and otherwise, can whip up rage. I don't see, I don't see any guarantees that. Uh, a rise in collective anger equates a sort of progressive movement or some such thing. Um, it is probably extraordinary. The first step of all this was, uh, you know, the, the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter and now becoming about police reform. Um, and that, you know, I, I do think that that is happening now because of COVID. Um, Yes, there have been police killing African Americans and Latinos forever. I mean, it's been a horrible legacy that's gone on in America for as long as I've been alive and certainly well before that. Um, what has changed is, you know, that we, you have cross generational conversations of people hunkered down in their house households together. Um, you know, college kids home with mom and dad and maybe grandma and, the conversations are taking a dynamic that we just haven't seen in the past. We just haven't seen for generations. Right. Uh, and, on, and on top of that, I think um, the disproportionate toll that the virus takes in those communities means uh, that there's another layer of rage, a another level of outrage about racism in America. Um, but to the class question, you know, will we see some kind of you know, massive uprising based on, on people losing their wealth of people uh, losing their homes and, and their livelihoods, you know, first in America, the middle class is never outraged. The middle class gets miserable. The middle class gets angry, but they never really get outraged. It's a, it's not an American phenomenon to have an outraged middle class. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, working class does not self-identify as working class in America anymore. So when we talk about outrage that is actually, you know, directed at recreating the way we work in America, um, it's interesting that some of the most progressive and outraged statements about the nature of our economy, the wealth gap, uh, and the, the corruption on Wall Street are coming from other Wall Streeters. You know, it's, it's uh, Larry Summers. And uh, I mean, I sat through this, this meeting with Gordon Brown, uh, the former prime minister of the UK, and Larry Summers, who was uh, Treasury Secretary under Obama during our great financial crisis of 2008 and nine, And they were side by side saying, we have to recreate globalization, only this time, not just to the benefit of the super rich. And we have to uh, create a sense of global solidarity that means a new kind of economy on the planet. There are a lot of people on the climate change side saying the same thing. This is the moment to say, as we restore our economies, as we come through COVID, we've got to come through green. We've got to come through with a lower CO2 footprint, with a elevation of new green economy, new kinds of employment. Uh, and 
you do see a lot of excitement about the possibility of capitalizing on this moment of grievous tragedy and hardship to create a new kind of world, a new kind of structure. Uh, whether any of that's going to rise to have the voice, I think will largely depend on who is running the world, you know, come 2021. Is it still Xi Jinping, uh, Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump? Or will there be some alterations in that landscape? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Are you are you staying pretty much at home? Do you, do you go out and about? Um, um, you know, what have you done during these four plus months? I have been pretty much at home. And uh, like everybody else, I'm getting pretty sick of it. I do go out for exercise. Uh, I never leave the apartment without a mask on not even inside the building. Mm. And uh, I also wear gloves when I go out. Um, it was all easier. It's easier to wear a, an effective mask and heavy gloves and uh, feel safe when you have winter clothes on. But now with summer heat, um, it's all becoming a little more difficult. Um, and I do feel that I can't go very much longer without feeling another human being's touch and without having, uh, you know, really vigorous exercise uh, that goes well beyond what I can do in the confines of my apartment. Right. Um, I think we're all getting sick of Zooming and having virtual connections. Right. We're all getting sick of these sort of, you know, stilted cocktail parties with friends online. And there, there, I, I long for that moment when you would greet your friends at the front door, throwing a party and give everybody a bear hug as they came in the door. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't feel like that's going to be anytime, anytime soon. The, the, I wonder what the effect, the lack of human touch uh, for people, especially people who are single uh, or live alone or whatever. Um, I'm just asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> what, what, what the effect, the mental effect that this has had on us. And, uh, and you're right. I think I'll tell you, I'll tell you the one that, that hit me. I was, um, I was in the hallway of my apartment building, um, trying to fix my bike to go out and take a ride. And a toddler came running down the hallway towards me from another apartment. And, uh, I realized that this child was born about six months before COVID hit. Mm. and she wasn't wearing a mask. And so I said, oh, six feet, six feet to warn her not to get too close to me. Mm -hmm. And she just put the brakes on, stopped and laughed and waved at me from, you know, how does an 18 month old kid know what six feet is or however old she is? At any rate, uh, I said to her mother who came running out to catch her, um, has she, had physical contact with anybody her age. And her mom said, no, she hasn't played with any peers. Wow. And it suddenly dawned on me that we have a whole generation of little children right now mm. who haven't been socialized by playing with other little children, getting into tussles, learning what dominance is, learning how to be a friend learning what's appropriate affection and what's not, you know, you don't hit somebody. If they don't have a sibling hunkered down with them, 
and they're all alone, it's just they and their parents. Right. Wow. And every cue they're learning is bouncing right off from their parents as if they were living in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, wow, if this continues out, and it will, for many more months, these are formative years for these kids. If you take the whole year of, say, 18 months of age to 36 months of age, and you've not been in nursery school, you've not been in playgroup, you haven't had people besides your parents close to you, and you haven't learned how to make fun and time without your parents around you. Wow. What are these kids going to be like when they turn four? Right. No, I can, you know, I, this is what I was thinking. When these kids get older, we're going to have real, a lot of trouble in the movie theaters. Um, assuming we still have, we movie, won't theaters. have movie theaters. We won't have, no, don't say that. Is that really true? Well, I know. You know, I've actually been in some consultations with some people in the industry who are trying to figure out how to make movies and how to um, yes. reopen movie theaters. Uh, and, of course, this is, this is a really tough challenge right now, but the, the industry was already in trouble before any of this happened. Right. right. And there were already declining attendances at movie theaters, and many – movie theater owners were realizing that if they wanted to continue to pack the seats, they were going to have to come up with it being a, a, a an experience to go to the movies. There would have to be more going on than just the motion picture itself. And uh, that's all going to be harder to accomplish mm. the longer we realize that we can't really sit, you know, shoulder to shoulder with other people. Even if you separate the seats a little bit, uh, it's it's still going to be tough, you know. You gotta you gotta crawl across somebody with your box of popcorn to get to your seat. You can't keep your mask on while you're eating popcorn. Uh, Pretty tough. When you laugh out loud, that just goes out everywhere. And if you've got a theater of 300 people laughing out loud, um, yeah, I yeah, I noticed Governor Cuomo. He said uh, last week he's got all these phases of reopening. Uh, you know, this can open, this can open. There's like five phases. There are two things that are not in any phase. Uh, gyms and movie theaters. He said he doesn't know when they're going to reopen. Um, and I don't even, I mean, do you think we, they should even be doing any reopening right now, anywhere? Well, and- I'll tell you, my my concerns are less about the movie industry because, frankly, there's so much money there. They'll figure something out and they have Netflix and what have you. But, um, I'm. I mean, I live in New York City. I am surrounded by friends who are artists performing artists, musicians, painters, sculptors, and they are all, all of them, every single one on zero income now. There are no venues open for the arts. Right. Our, great, our great museums, right. the Metropolitan, the Whitney, the Guggenheim, and so on, have become giant warehouses worth, with trillions of dollars worth of stuff inside of them. And the longer this goes on, the, the more marginal their finance, financial situation is uh, so that, you know, now they can pay the security guards and they can pay the curators to still keep an eye on things. But how much longer can that go on? 
And this is true not just for American museums and American opera companies and uh, orchestras. Broadway, live theater. And rock bands and you name it. It's true the world over. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I, I do realize now I'm starting to understand a few things that always puzzled me. You know, I, I, when I was in Florence, I got access to the National Archives in Italy and looked at some of the original parchment and vellum manuscripts from the plague in 1346 to 1351. And uh, I was very frustrated. I wasn't finding some, you know, great document that delineated the damage to Florence or that described the horror of the plague. And in fact, mostly what I was finding were, pe- were people pissed off that their work wasn't going so well, you know, like a wine merchant mad that he would get to the vineyards and nobody had picked the crops. Where were they? Darn it. Well, they were dead. That's where they were. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it just, it had this very strange sense to it. And when you think about what were the great writings about the plague, whether it's the Black Death of London in 1660 or the, um, you know, Great Plague of the 14th century, where are the great writings? And it's just a hand, the Decameron, uh, the Plague Years, a uh, handful of books, and all of them were written after the fact, a generation later, uh, by people who interviewed and talked to their elders and recreated something that they did not personally experience. Um, and I realized, wow, you know, there is this long extended period where the arts just disappear in European history. And that's why. And interestingly, you know, the, the, the London plague comes right at the height of Shakespeare. Shakespeare never wrote a play specifically about plague, but all through his plays are references to plague and in many cases, the worst curse you can cast on someone is to say a pox on you. May a plague come upon your house. And we hear that now. Uh, maybe today it resonates for us, but in the 20th century, we would hear that and it would be just like a line, like, "Should you? I hope you have bad luck or whatever. But certainly in 1665, if an actor said on the stage of the Globe Theater, I wish a plague upon your house, it would have been received with great horror by the audience because they had just been through a plague where it was bring out the dead and it was of great scale. And so I I do wonder how much of the arts are going to survive. What will they look like? What what will the arts be saying about this moment um, as we get away from it? And will we have something more than just kind of egocentric reflections on being stifled inside during a lockdown and instead have something really, truly meaningful and profound that comes out of this um, that is reflected in, in the arts, in economics, in how we do business, in how we relate to each other as human beings. And of course, in science. I have two final questions for you. Number one, why does it seem that New York and much of the Northeast uh, is not participating in the massive rise in new cases every day? Is, have we achieved 
herd immunity, as they call it? Uh, is it possible that it went through so much so bad that enough people got it? Or what is there an is there a scientific explanation for why um, New York um, and parts of the Northeast seem to be avoiding the catastrophe that's currently taking place? Well, we already had our catastrophe. So, so that we had it, and, and we that, had it. But does that mean it's that's it? Has, it has nothing to do with herd immunity. Um, I think the the highest level of infection found in parts of New York City is only about twenty percent of the population has antibodies. So, herd immunity—you've got to get, you know, up in the eighty to ninety percent level. Um, so no, we don't have herd immunity. What we have is a herd that decided to get back in the barn. And they're not out there ambling through the hills amongst the other infected out there. Um, and I think, I think it's very hard for the rest of the country to understand what New York went through, especially here in New York City. Mm. You know, the, the sound of sirens 24-7. Yeah. The sense of death was in the air. There was never a moment when you would not think about it. Uh, and when you could just, you know, escape uh, any thoughts of this terrible pandemic. And almost everybody, I knew someone who had COVID and probably knew someone who died of it and or was on the front lines fighting it or both or all of the above. In my case, all of the above. Um, and I think that what's happening now is that other parts of the country are just starting to catch up. You know, this is, this has been one gigantic wave with little wavelets. We're not in a second wave. Anybody who says that doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, the virus, the virus is spreading out all over the country. And, you know, my, my biggest concern for New York is that we have a, you know, a historic multi-generational tradition of a kind of de facto bridge between New York and Florida with very large percentage of the population of Florida being former New Yorkers and a lot of New Yorkers having relatives in Florida and a lot of back and forth is normal. And with Florida now being one of the epicenters of our epidemic, um, I'm worried. And of course the governor shares this worry that, we're going to see a Floridian, you know, visitor or groups of Floridian visitors bringing virus back to the city again. Now, so wh what does this mean going forward? I think that it's essential that places like New York City, like uh, most of New Jersey, most of Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, these areas, Maryland, Baltimore, all have to realize, okay, you can't let down your guard. On the contrary, you have to elevate your guard and you can't lay off personnel. You have to elevate your public health personnel. Now is the time to be building really, really sophisticated surveillance systems so that we spot an introduced case early when it's possible to trace every person that individual has been in contact with we test all those people as fast as possible. Any that turn up positive are placed under self-quarantine. 
anybody who's positive with symptoms is placed in a designated hotel or uh, residential facility of some kind that is separated from the rest of society. And we, you know, come up with ways of having non-punitive, non-stigmatizing, but essentially quarantine uh, to minimize the spread over and over and over again. And that's what's going to be from now on. In other words, if you test positive, you get a 14 days uh, free stay at the Hilton Times Square and uh, with food provided. Something, I mean, I'm not being... Something like that. But, but no, but the, but that's what, it's, it's a version of, didn't China finally figure out, oh my God, 70% of the people that have died in China have been killed by a relative. Like after, yeah. no, was after somebody tested positive, then they just went home and infected everybody in the home. Then they, then they said, okay, no more of that. We've got to have dorms and hotel rooms. And for 14 days, they've got to, you know, um, stay quarantined. It, it, uh... I don't even know, and this is the last thing I was going to ask you about testing. Why bother getting a test? The, the, first of all, the, the, if you go to the, the city MD or the, you know, the walk-in clinic, you get, you get the results back in three or four days. Well, how many, you could have got it in the next, in those next three or four days. It's a test that tells you what happened on Saturday. Well, Saturday's long gone. You, you could walk out of the testing facility and get infected uh, uh, 10 minutes later. The test is only relevant for those first maybe five or 10 minutes that you've taken the test. What is the point of everybody in their cars lining up for those tests when we don't have a plan for after the test is administered? Right. If, if testing by itself is not terribly useful, it may be an interesting piece of epidemiology that tells you you have a problem, but it's not useful on an individual or an employer or school basis. I went through a long period where I was getting phone calls from large companies asking me, you know, how many times do we have to test our workers and how, how frequently and what do we do if they test positive by this and then and I said, if you're going to think that you can open your business, your factory, your production center, your financial business, whatever it may be, and have everybody back in the office or on the factory floor and then be testing them every single day, that's, that's not the way it's going to work. That's not the answer. First of all, you're not even going to get a hold of that many test kits. Second of all, there are real reliability issues on, on all the tests, but especially the antibody tests, which are proving to be pretty flaky. Um, but then on top of all of that, it's exactly what you said. An individual may test negative on Monday, uh, go shopping for food Monday night, and be positive on Tuesday. Or does that mean that every single kid returning to school should be tested every single morning? Um, eh. You know, the interesting thing is I was in the SARS epidemic in 2003, and I was in China and Hong Kong, and then I returned to see uh, how – what changes had been made to deal with future epidemics um, in the hard-hit areas of Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and China. Uh, and in that case, about 90% of all transmission was from people who had fevers. So the thermometer became the tool of public health. It was more important than the mask, though the masks were worn. And every single airport, every single train station, 
every building entry, everything had either temperature-taking portals or individuals holding fever guns. And if you had a fever, you were you know, separated from the rest of the herd and told to follow procedures. And those procedures varied by country. Um, unfortunately, when, when China first got hit with this and realized it was a cousin of the SARS virus, uh, they, I could see they were activating the SARS playbook and, uh, everything became about fever checking. And that is probably why things got so out of control in Wuhan, because we now know, um, at least half, if not the majority of transmission is, uh, from people who have no symptoms, including no fever. Lori, Lori Garrett, um, this is for the people. Who, I got a feeling everybody who started with us is still with us, and the people I warned not to listen to this uh, listened to us. So I guess you know before I, w- I want to let, let you have the last word in terms of thinking about what what people should do. But I, w- I also just wanted to mention I forgot to mention this in your introduction that you were a consultant on the film uh, Contagion which is a film that we all have on a continuous loop right now. We've all, we've all watched it two or three times uh, during the pandemic in, in part because it's, it's always better to see people who have it worse than you makes you feel a little bit better. Millions died in that movie. Um, but also the hope at the end, uh, the movie ends, they they, they get a vaccine by day one, one seventeen. Um, and I was thinking about that today because I'm in that day today. Um, that, uh, but what they didn't show at the end, they just show everybody getting a shot. But Lawrence Fishburne, one of the, the top doctors there at the CDC, he gives his shot to a kid uh, who wasn't going to necessarily qualify for a shot. And, and it leaves open the question that they rush the vaccine at the end of the movie. We never see if the vaccine works. <laughs> the movie ends. And I don't, I, I assume. I assume you had an interesting time uh, trying to consult and trying to offer your advice uh, to the filmmakers. Uh, yeah. Well, we went through many permutations on that um, in part because uh, the original script was really about a reprise of the 1918 pandemic flu. So that um, we were imagining what if a flu of that severity and contagiousness hit the world today what right. would that look like and unfortunately the script was pretty much done um Soderberg was happy with it and then in fact swine flu broke out and we watched it play out and it pro- played out exactly as we had written the script with mm. one big exception it wasn't a terribly virulent flu and and it didn't kill Gwyneth Paltrow in the first 10 minutes <laughs> a, a crime if there ever was one but no, but you're right. But it, so, so what then, what did you, what did you all do? So that meant that everybody had to go back to the drawing board and rethink it, it. You know, Soderbergh said it can't be flu now. We've got to come up with something else. And um, Ian Lipkin, who's a, a terrific scientist at Columbia University, actually uh, virtually in, invented a virtual virus uh, similar to the Nipah virus which is found in Southeast Asia spread from bats through palm trees to kids and pigs. And then can, it it is very, very lethal. If you acquire Mm. it, your odds of dying are greater than your odds of surviving. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's really no effective treatment or vaccine for it. Um, so he was imagining what if Nipah broke out of that cycle of transmission and became airborne contagious between people. Mm. Um, and so that, that led to a whole different think about how it would work. And then it reminded me of my experiences with SARS because when SARS first broke out, um, of course, China covered it up for a long time and we were many months into the outbreak before the world realized what was on its hands because of China's cover-up. Uh, and when I went to Hong Kong and it was still possible for me to sneak across the border and get to Guangzhou to the wet market where it had all started and they had still not closed it down. And I could see the conditions under which the animals were stored and sold and where the animals went. And in particular, the civets, which we now know were the sort of conduit. Um, it went from bats to civets to people. And, um, and then go to the restaurants and the dormitories where the restaurant workers lived and see how it spread inside those restaurants and how it spread inside those dormitory conditions. So that became a big part of contagion. We, we built that into the movie and you do see in the final scenes as Matt Damon pulls out, finds Gwyneth Paltrow's phone and opens it up and looks at the photos. He Mm, realizes how she was exposed in this restaurant. Right. Actually the end of the film is kind of a, like a memento reverse or it takes you back right to the very first. And it's not the very first thing. Isn't the bat. The first thing is uh, some company mowing down the bats habitat uh, with bulldozers uh, and the banana trees and trying to do uh, uh, development and growth and all these things that have been a plague. Well, you know, people, people are constantly asking me, why is it always bats? Ebola's from bats, Lissa's from bats, Nipah's from bats, you know, COVID's from bats. Why bats? And shouldn't we just kill all the bats? And of course, the answer is no, don't kill all the bats. First of all, they are the insectivore bats are the ones eating the mosquitoes that carry malaria, et cetera. And secondly, the, uh, the other bats that are, are vegetarian are the great pollinators of the rainforests. Without them, you would have no trees, no great growth in the rainforest. Well, but why bats? Because we are really ruining bat habitats. Yeah. It's a bulldozer, not the bat. It's the bulldozer. Yeah. It's the bulldozer. It's climate change. The temperature is rising in the upper canopies of the rainforest, and that's affecting the nature of the fruit growth and, and the ability of the bats to tolerate living up in the upper tiers of the canopies. Well, it was, uh, it's, um, uh, I, I think the, the movie itself is a, is a, is a good eye opener and, and I think has generated a lot of a discussion. The, the, what you have done and what you've been saying and doing here during this time has been, um, I think, uh, you you've been doing the Lord's work and if, if we can still say things like that, but, um, let me just, uh, I wanted to give you that this last moment though, to people who are listening, this, the podcast is going to end now. And, um, and you have a choice, uh, possibly to get up, to do something. Um, 
What is that something that a person right now listening to you and I could do today, tonight, tomorrow? Not, you know, the obvious things, yes. Please wear a mask. Please wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Don't infect others. Um, um, but what is they, I think people want to know, they want to do more than just that. They, they want to, they want to make a difference and we're not doctors and we're not scientists, so we can't make a difference that way. What can the average person listening to this right now do as this podcast ends? I think it would be amazing if whether you're hunkered down with your family or you're alone, but you're on social media with friends all the time. If you thought about what is your skill set, what's your special skill? What do you, what everybody's got one at least, whether it's the skill you earn a living from or it's the skill that nobody's really paid you for it, but it's something you do well. Is it singing? Is it dancing? Is it being a fixer, a, a diddler, an inventor, an engineer, whatever it may be? Um, to sit down with like-minded colleagues and friends with the same shared skill set and ask, what can we be working on now that reimagines society after COVID from our point of view? How can schooling be different if your, if your skill is, t is a teacher? What, what would You've always been mad about all the problems in the school system. Everybody's always mad about problems in the school system. Now's a good time to ask with fellow teachers, what, what would a school really look like in the post-COVID era? What, what have we always wanted to fix? Let's fix it. How would we fix it? Let's start that conversation now. We're hunkered down. Everybody we need to reach, we can find on their home phone number or their home email address. Let's, let's get the conversation rolling. And I know that lots of people in the arts are going through this now out of desperation, asking, will we ever again have audiences uh, packed into theaters? Will we ever again have sellout exhibitions at museums where people are literally craning around others in giant crowds to see their favorite Matisse. Well, everybody should be doing this, whether your skill is that you're a heck of a cyclist or you're, you were going to be in the Olympics, but the Olympics have been postponed. You're a dancer, you're a tennis player. I don't care. Whatever it is, Start imagining what your post-COVID world would look like and imagining how it could be more humane, safer, stronger, and more meaningful for a broader range of humanity than we're previously able to engage in it. Wow. I, I, that's uh, so beautifully put, and I can't think of a better way to actually just spend this quiet time right now imagining that, the world I want to live in, that you want to live in. Um, and, and the belief that we could make it happen. Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, they, in various levels, they made things happen. They persevered. They suffered through things. They, the world got a little bit better, you know, two steps forward, one step backward. One step forward, two steps backward. Um, but I'm going to do what you just said. I'm going to think of, that's how I'm, I'm going to spend uh, the rest of today. I'm going to, I'm going to, just gave me an idea. I'm going to get out a piece of paper and make that list.
of what of what that world, whether not just my personal world, but the world I live in, what that could be. And, um, and maybe we'll revisit this on a, on a later podcast uh, in the next week or two. Lori Garrett, thank you so much. Um, thank you for the work you've done. Um, it, it, where where can people find you if they want to just stay in touch with you, with your thinking, your writings, your your talks? What 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 uh, what can we put up on our on our podcast uh, site here? Uh, so that people can click and, and find you. Well, um, the two best ways to sort of keep track of me are my website, which is currently under renovation, and that's www.lauriegarrett.com. And the other is I'm a Twitterati. So go to at Laurie underscore Garrett and catch me on Twitter. And Garrett is with two R's and two T's. Is that right? Correct. And Lori is not L-O-R-I. Oh, yeah. What an abomination. Uh, those Lori's, I'm telling you, they really wrecked it for all the real Lori's. It's well, L-A-U-R-I-E, right? Yes, right. So you have to think Irish. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yes, think Irish. Um, that has helped in the past. I can, you know, cite examples. But um, thank you. Uh, very much. And uh, thank you to all of you who've been listening to this. I know you probably have a lot more questions. Feel free to send them uh, to me on, on our, our, our podcast site here. Uh, Mike at michaelmore.com is all you got to do. You can leave a voice message. Uh, go to, go to Lori's site, go to Lori on Twitter. Uh, that is a good idea. Uh, because uh, um, with the 280 characters, uh, she'll give you the, the straight dope. Um, and we do want to hear we do want to hear the truth, no matter how awful that truth is. It's our only way out. And I thank you for your honesty, Lori. And uh, and please uh, keep doing and please come back on someday uh, to this podcast. It's been a, a great, uh, great time to spend with you here. Stay safe, Michael. You too. And everybody out there, you too. This has been Rumble. I'm Michael Moore. Thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and to everybody out there. Um, uh, be well, and we'll talk soon. Godspeed, Mother Nature.